Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined, as usual, by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, to talk about what's been going on this week in the Investment Trust world. Well, let's start, Simon, this week with, as usual, by a quick recap on how the markets have performed. And then we might also, after that, have a look at how the discounts of different sectors have moved over the course of the year so far. But let's start with the markets overall. So it's been a good week for UK investors, or certainly investors in the UK market. Uh, the FTSE All Share is up probably around about 6% or so. Uh, the investment companies sector has, has lagged a bit this week, although still year to date is significantly ahead. And obviously, part of the story of investment trust companies is the discount levels, the difference between the share price and their net asset values. And again, we've been doing a little bit of work on that. And as we've talked about in previous podcasts, um, there's been a huge degree of discount volatility so far this year. At the start of the year, probably about 1%. It went out to 22% sector average discount in the middle of March, a level that we haven't seen since the financial crisis of 2008. And actually, it has tightened in considerably and find, found a range between 5 and 10%, probably about 7% or so at the moment. But uh, this, it's certainly fair to say that uh, the majority of subsectors are still trading on discount, six of the 40 at the moment. Uh, we have the highly rated subsectors such as renewable energy infrastructure and royalties and just the more generalist infrastructure names. But, you know, a huge number of sectors are actually trading out on quite significant discounts. So there's certainly or there would appear to be some value out there in the investment company space. By value, you're implying that obviously a discount by its nature suggests that, uh, as you say, the share price is trading below the net asset value. And therefore, that uh, if you buy it at that price, if other things being equal, and if the net asset value is correct, then over time, you would hope to see that discount narrow a little bit, or at least you're buying something for less than it's actually worth. Of course, we're not totally confident about net asset values at the moment, Simon, are we? I think that's fair to say. So there may be some value out there. But of course, in certain cases, it might be uh, just reflecting the fact that investors still don't have total confidence in the credibility of the net asset values. Is that a fair comment? Absolutely fair. And of course, it will vary dependent on the asset classes. So on some of the uh, less liquid, more specialist asset classes, we're still working off some, uh, frankly, out of date now uh, valuations. So valuations at the end of 2019, or some probably even a little bit earlier than that. So the world has changed considerably in the intervening months. So it pays to do your homework when you look at uh, net asset values, certainly on those more specialist uh, asset classes. Right. And we've also this week heard about uh, changes to the main market indices uh, produced by uh, FTSE. This is a regular quarterly event. We've talked about that in the past. But this week, we've actually had the announcement of which uh, companies are going in and which companies are coming out of the various uh, FTSE sectors. Those companies include investment trusts. Perhaps you could just quickly update us on uh, what the outcome of this uh, latest quarterly review has been. So you're absolutely right. They do review the index on a quarterly basis. But the one in June is actually the annual review. Uh, the key difference being that the parameters for inclusion or exclusion are that much wider. So you tend to see far more movement at this time of the year. Uh, and that's certainly been true in the investment trust space. Although we haven't seen any investment trust companies go into the FTSE 100, we've seen four uh, promoted to the mid cap. So the, the next 250 names and that's Scottish American JLN Environmental Assets, BB Healthcare, and Civitas Social Housing. But um, probably more importantly, of the six 
uh, investment trust companies that have been promoted into the all share and they will go in uh, to the FTSE small cap as well. Uh, so it's names like Augmentum, Aurora, AVI, Japan Opportunity, the JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets, bit of a mouthful, Gabelli Value Plus Plus and M&G Credit Income. The reason why that's significant is that it means that if you're an ETF, if you're a, an index tracker, uh, and you're tracking the all share, you have to buy those names. You're obliged to buy those names. So as a rule of thumb, probably in the region of about 6 or 7% of, a, of the shareholder register are in the hands of passive investors. So um, one can assume that will be a, uh, a lot more demand for those six names I just mentioned. And that's uh, effective coming up in a, in a few weeks' time on the 19th of June. So it takes place at the market close on the 19th of June. So that would imply, obviously, that there's more demand for these particular investment trusts. And other things being equal, you'd expect more demand would lead to a slightly higher share price or a slightly narrower discount, perhaps. Uh, but to what extent are these impending changes discounted in advance by the market? In other words, if everybody can see who's going to go into the index at that point, they probably would buy them now rather than wait for that change to take place. Is that in fact what happens? There's certainly trading around the index rebalancing. That's definitely true, though it would appear to be that, um, and this is the dark arts of the passive investor, they tend not to actually trade ahead uh, unless there was a very uh, particular special situation. So invariably for the mainstream passive investors, they will tend to buy at the date of promotion or inclusion. So you, you will see a whole flurry of trading. Now, people, it's probably fair to say, will you know, see those buyers coming and position themselves accordingly. But you can often see uh, a spike, particularly in some of the, the less liquid names. So the best examples of those invariably just going into the all share. And actually, the reverse is true as well. Those being demoted from, from the all share coming out entirely, uh, then you can see uh, quite a bit of stock coming out in those instances. Well, one of the things that struck me about looking at the details of this, this uh, index review is that those five you mentioned, or six you mentioned, they all have market capitalizations of between uh, you know, 100 million and well, roughly 200 million. I think there's one a bit above 200 million. But a lot of them are just above 100 million. And we've talked in the past about the changing market for investment trusts. And we've said that you know, wealth managers, the institutions who normally support investment trusts, increasingly say you need to be around 200 million to justify them buying them on liquidity grounds. Does this mean, though, that these companies that are joining the index, do they have some hope of getting onto wealth managers' radar as well as a result of this change? Or do they have to grow further before they would become of interest? I mean, it will obviously depend on the wealth manager. And there are some wealth managers who are probably nimble enough to actually buy uh, companies below 100 billion, not have too many problems. But equally, there are those that are now so large that, that probably it's not even 200 million, it may be nearer to 400 million. So it does vary clearly. But I think we would take inclusion into the FTSE All Share as being a positive step. It does tend to improve the liquidity in the secondary marketplace for, for these companies. Um, and I, you know, a lot of companies will take some pride in the fact that they're members of the All Share or members of the mid cap and, and the one or two that slip into the FTSE 100 are quite quick to point it out as well. Well, we'll come on to uh, some of the bigger names that have been making announcements or, or giving out uh, results this week in a moment. But while we've just mentioned these index arrivals, we might mention one still relatively small trust which has gone into the index for the first time. And that is this investment trust you mentioned called Augmentum Fintech. That's not a name I think which many uh, investors may yet be familiar with. But it's in a, in a kind of sexy area, if you like, in the field of financial technology. It's an area where lots of things are happening. But what What's special about Augmentum Fintech and, and what are they doing and how have they been trading? Yeah, so it's been a good story. It's a relatively new company and it came to the market a year or two ago. And as the name would suggest, they invest in 
financial technology companies, so fintech companies, but they're private. So they, these are not listed companies. Um, and it's a relatively concentrated portfolio, some very interesting companies in there, probably about 18 or so at the moment. And there's a balance between very uh, early stage potential high growth type plays. So just really at the, the onset of their, of their lives as a company. And then they've also got companies that are probably later stage that are more mature. And they're focused on areas such as kind of asset and wealth and banking services. And um, as I said, they've got a range of, of different companies. But uh, I think it's certainly one to, to keep an eye on it. The, the share price has been very volatile this year. Um, it's trading um, north of a pound at the moment, but it did fall down to about 57p at one stage uh, and has recovered in time to uh, get promoted into to the all share. So certainly a volatile share price, but uh, we'll see how the actual underlying portfolio progresses uh, as the, the years go by. A lot of fintech companies, something that uh, Scottish Mortgage and other people have talked about, are remaining private for longer. In other words, they're staying in you know, unlisted companies. They're not coming to the stock market early in their life to get capital, even if they're in a rather sexy area like this one is. So what's their strategy? Are they hoping that the companies they do own will go public and therefore that will give them a valuation boost? Or are they planning to keep investing in these private companies on the grounds that that's where the best bargains are at the moment? I think they're um, very happy to be long-term investors in, in the companies that they've backed. I mean, uh, undoubtedly, I'm sure and one would expect to see a number come to the market at some stage. Though obviously, the advantage of a, of a listed closed-ended fund structure is you can take a very long, long-term long view, and they've certainly got some more capital to deploy. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Augmentum were to uh, recapture their premium rating, uh, which who knows, they may do on the, on the back of the all-share inclusion and a little bit of good run that you could see them coming back to the marketplace and trying to raise some additional capital. Because invariably, there are these types of companies that they're investing do require uh, additional capital to grow. There's invariably a number of funding uh, rounds. And it's actually at those points when you can see the boost to the NAV as the valuations get lifted through the, the valuation rounds. Right. So the valuations of this kind of company is based on, as you say, on the funding round. So every time they raise more money, hopefully that's at a higher price. And then Presumably, the investment trust can then take that price as their valuation. Or how much sort of discretion is involved in terms of valuing these unlisted companies? So invariably, the way it would tend to work is it would, it would be subject to an independent third-party valuer, and they would look at the, the funding round. So, uh, you know, relatively recently, back in April, two of their portfolio companies, Onfido and Previs, I think you pronounce it, uh, announced fundraising, and certainly that uh, helped to boost Augmentum's NAV. Uh, with an uplift on on the fundraising. So that's the kind of good news. But clearly, as an investor in those type of companies, you need the additional capital, you need to be able to follow your money. The danger is if you're not in a position to do that, then you can your position can be diluted down. And um, I think on those early stage companies, particularly those that are showing good signs of progress, you want to be in a position where you can follow those names. So that's Augmentum FinTech. Uh, I'm going to quote some of the stock market tickers of the uh, of the investment trust you mentioned. Uh, some people mentioned that. That is A-U-G-M. And you know, I think I'm going to put that on my one to watch list rather than one I'm going to necessarily kind of uh, look too closely at to invest in myself. But that's just me. I'm going to move on and ask you about a familiar subject we've, we've talked about. We're getting more detail all the time. And this is talking about some of the property investment trusts. And they've all been affected by the lockdown. They're having trouble collecting all their rents. And some have been more badly affected than others. So there's two or three have been talking about this particular issue this week. Uh, a number of them were all tied up in a situation involving Travelodge, the kind of cheap uh, hotel chain, 
Perhaps you could explain what's been going on there and, and mention one or two of the companies that are involved in this particular issue. So I think as we've discussed before, it's obviously a very difficult environment for the uh, property companies at the moment. The news this week that Travelodge Hotels was proposing a creditor's voluntary arrangement, a CVA, uh, which effectively would allow it to pay its uh, creditors over a fixed period of time and with a uh, potentially reduced amount. Now, that had an impact on a number of the property funds, including Secure Income REIT and LXI REIT. Uh, Secure Income REIT, it's fair to say, has larger exposure. Uh, They have got 123 Travel Lodge properties in their portfolio. LXI REIT um, have um, got substantially left. I think it's about 12 or so. So the impact, uh, unsurprisingly, is greater on Secure Income REIT. But both of those property investment companies have said they're going to look at this um, proposal. There's a vote coming up on the 19th of June, uh, and we'll see where we go with it. I mean, I think it's fair to say, Talking to uh, asset managers in the property space, they've been well aware that there are some companies that have been uh, more aggressive when it comes to uh, negotiating where they go with rents. And, and Travel Lodge has been mentioned as one of the certainly one of the more aggressive players. So we'll see how this one plays out. I think it's fair to say, though, it wouldn't necessarily be good news for those two companies, particularly Secure Income REIT. And obviously, it will potentially have implications on their on their dividends. I can't help but help have a little chuckle about the name of the investment trust, Secure Income REIT. It uh, obviously would have been sounding like a good idea when they launched the investment trust, but it has turned out its income has been anything but secure. But that's just, I suppose, the luck of the draw. No one expected this to uh, this to happen. Okay, so let's move on to another sector which is quite interesting and obviously has done very well this year, and that is the sort of broad sector of healthcare and pharmaceuticals. A couple of names have been in the frame this week. There's a very large investment trust called Worldwide Healthcare, which I noted has just hit its all-time high, or was recently just hit its all-time high share price. So that shrugged off the uh, coronavirus uh, market impact. And then there's also a company called Biotech Growth Trust. Uh, This, I should say, is a company to which uh, Winterfell Securities is the corporate broker. But uh, tell us something about these two companies and... uh, how they've been faring through the uh, the course of the crisis. So they've both uh, published results uh, this week, and it's uh, to the 12 months to the end of March. And they're both, as you said, both performing very well. They do something slightly different. So there is a bit of overlap. And they're both managed by the same outfit, which is a specialist uh, firm called Orbimed, who are based in New York, although they have offices around the world. But they just uh, specialize in investing in healthcare companies. So in the case of Worldwide Healthcare, their results, they were up 6.5% to that 12 months to the end of March, and that represented an outperformance of their benchmark. And the way that their portfolio is set up, they do have some uh, biotech, but they'll also have some of the large uh, pharmaceutical names uh, and some of the large biotech names as well. So it'll it'll be quite varied. Uh, Biotech Grove is a more specialist place, a smaller company as well, actually. And they are focused on, again, biotech, but as opposed to the kind of mega cap biotech stocks, their bias is towards some of the emerging names in that space. And as I say, they've both um, performed incredibly well. Uh, they're both prepared to go uh, a little bit off piece and, and uh, make some interesting investments. So in the, in the case of biotech growth, they've backed um, some companies in China, which is, is going quite well for them. So um, I think at the start of this year, one of our big concerns with this particular area 
was the political risk that we could see coming down the track from the US presidential election. And obviously at that time, it wasn't quite clear who would get the, uh, the, the Democrat nomination, and particularly with people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, potentially uh, grabbing it. And that could have had quite serious repercussions for drug pricing in the, in the US uh, and the healthcare industry in general. Those concerns have clearly been eased, have gone away at the moment, but obviously um, COVID-19 has really overtaken the sector. But um, I think on a kind of long-term secular growth story, um, I think both look very strong. Traditionally, you'd expect the biotech area to be uh, more volatile, and that's certainly how it's kind of played out. But on a long-term view, I think both look very, very interesting asset classes. So that's the uh, Biotech Growth Trust, the BIOG, and Worldwide Healthcare, WWH, Can you actually still buy those shares on a discount or are they trading at a premium? In the case of biotech growth, they are on a little bit of a discount and I will give you exactly the number. A 4% discount, that was at the close of Thursday trading and uh, worldwide healthcare was trading on a very small premium, probably about 1% premium. So you mentioned China in that as one of the issues, uh, one of the places that uh, these companies have been looking. Obviously, China itself is becoming a bit of a political issue this year. We know there's sort of mounting tension between the United States and President Trump and the Chinese government. Is that going to have an impact, do you think, on the demand for investment trusts that specialize in China? We've heard from one this week, I think, which is uh, Fidelity China Special Situations. Obviously, the very large investment trust that was originally started with Anthony Bolton, the well-known UK fund manager, as its manager several years ago. What's been their experience recently? How has that been trading? And what have they been saying about their results? So their results for their particular year, um, a little bit on the disappointing side, their energy was down about 6% compared with 1% for the benchmark. But uh, it's actually 10 years now since this particular company uh, has been launched. And you're right, Anthony Bolton kind of led the charge and then Dale Nichols has managed it in recent years. And actually over that 10 years, it has performed very strongly. It probably just come off the ball a little bit in the last few years. Um, certainly their mid and small cap bias has uh, acted as a, as a bit of a headwind just over the last six to 12 months. But yeah, you're right. What happens in, uh, in China, the relations with the US, it's, it's not just Chinese funds, to be fair. It is a talking point with anybody investing in Asia or even for that matter, emerging markets. Um, so it's one of the first questions that we ask certainly asset managers in that space uh, with regards to their view. Obviously, different people have uh, different opinions on it. I think most people kind of expected uh, something with regard to um, Hong Kong in particular. Um, that's been a talking point, obviously, for over a year now, just in terms of the, the, the recent troubles there. But it's uh, the relations between the US and China. I, I don't think this is one uh, an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. And clearly, it will have an impact on, on how investments in that area perform. I mean, I think it's fair to say, looking at the uh, performance, I mean, the shares have recovered very strongly. They took a dive in March along with, uh, obviously, a lot of other trusts, but they have recovered quite strongly. And they don't seem to be that much affected by the news coming out of Hong Kong, which is obviously indicative of a broader range of tensions between China and the, and the rest of the world. So they've actually performed pretty strongly, I would say. And... Uh, Obviously, they've recovered quite well, or at least so far from the virus as the country itself. But I think it's also fair to say that Fidelity China's special situation doesn't just invest in companies that are listed in China or indeed operate in China. It's, uh, it has quite a broad remit, does it not, in terms of the kind of companies you can invest in. Some of the links to China may be rather more tenuous than some others. So one of the issues that um, a company like Fidelity China will have, and to be fair, again, other Asian or emerging market companies will have those companies 
listed in the US. And there's been some um, noises coming out of the Trump administration, uh, whether that, uh, the, what they called ADRs, whether that situation will be allowed to continue. Um, again, most asset managers in this space seem relatively relaxed on that. They clearly recognize that it wouldn't be a, a positive development, but they don't think it would necessarily be a disastrous one if, if, if the rules would change on that. You're right, there are some managers who take a quite a wide view. Uh, I'm just trying to think of an example. Companies like Unilever pop up in, the, in emerging market type mandates because, of course, they do have a huge amount of sales to Unilever. Or Louis Vuitton is another favourite as well. The fact that Louis Vuitton is a play on growing demand from uh, the wealthy middle classes of, of emerging markets as well. So, yes, I mean, people can uh, expand their mandate to a greater or lesser extent. Um, I think in the case of Fidelity China Special Sits, they are very focused, as I said, on that kind of mid and small cap space in, in, in China. And I think when that comes back into favour, uh, you would imagine that this particular fund would, would um, certainly benefit from that in terms of performance. Right. So that's uh, Fidelity China Special Situations, FCSS, has a market cap of, I think, uh, getting on for 1.3 billion. So it's one of the bigger trusts. And that might lead us on nicely to mention Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust, which was, I think it's fair to say, the first general uh, emerging markets investment trust that was launched uh, many years ago, with Mark Mobius, the well-known investor at its head. He's now left, obviously, to start his own investment trust, which is the uh, Mobius Investment Trust. And there was a, a change of manager again recently. But that's still a very big trust, is it not? It's, I, I think I looked it down, it's about 1.8 billion. So despite the sort of changes they've had there, the departure of their figurehead manager, it's still a large and liquid trust and a good, a good general way to invest in emerging markets. What are, what's been their experience? How have they been trading? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we regard this one as the kind of the flagship emerging market funds for, for the, the reasons that you just gave. I mean, it's trading on a 9% discount um, in its results that it's just announced, and that was uh, 12 months to the end of March. It outperformed on a relative basis. It, the NAV was down 11% against 13% for the benchmark. I mean, I think the real story here is it's, it's kind of life after Mobius. And there was another gentleman called Carlos Hardenberg who uh, kind of picked up the reins of this one a year or two ago, and he's left with Mark to set up Mobius Capital Partners. But since their departures, there has been a reorganization of the team behind uh, Templeton Emerging Markets, and it's the Franklin Templeton Emerging Markets team uh, of 80 investment professionals uh, around the world. And there's been a few departures uh, and a few new hires. And I think there are signs that that team is now bedding in and uh, a slightly more disciplined investment process. Uh, and certainly before we hit this bout of market volatility, the performance record of Templeton Emerging Markets had improved. So it is an obvious kind of one for people to look at, should they be wishing uh, emerging market exposure. I think it's fair to say that emerging markets in general are a bit out of favour at the moment. The average discounts somewhere around about 10 or 11%. But it is, as I say, the flagship fund in that particular subsector. That was uh, Templeton Emerging Markets, I said TEM. Talking of manager changes, we also heard this week from a smaller investment trust called Securities Trust for Scotland, STS, and their uh, fund manager has left. This is a trust that is managed by the Scottish firm of Martin Curry, which is itself a subsidiary of the American fund management group, Lake Mason. So do we know what the story is there? And uh, is there any reason why, if we were invested in that trust, we should be concerned about the news that the fund manager has left? Well, so he has resigned. Um, and I think the, the, the announcement seems to suggest that he would be around until the 1st of December. 
But I think the, probably a couple of points there. He joined uh, Martin Currier. He was appointed to head up that fund about four years ago, May 2016. And actually, the performance has, has picked up on that fund considerably and it went to a, a premium rating. So there was a lot of hard work done to, to pick up a fund that was, wasn't really going anywhere. So I think Martin Curry will be very disappointed with this, particularly because the board of that investment trust have served protective notice uh, on Martin Curry. Now, that's uh, six months notice, which would coincide with the departure of Mark Whitehead, uh, give or take. Um, the reasons why they've done that is because uh, it enables them to kind of consider their options. What's the, what's the best way forward uh, for their shareholders? Um, and by announcing it to the market, what they're not technically obliged to do, it means that... Um, should they wish to talk to any alternative investment managers or conversely, other alternative investment managers throw their hats into the ring, uh, they're able to do so on a lot more straightforward basis. So it's one to watch. Um, you know, could we see this uh, investment trust the Martin Curry? It is a possibility, though, uh, again, one suspect that Martin Curry would be very keen to uh, retain it, having you know, done a lot of hard work to get it to a premium rating. Martin Curry is an investment trust stable. They, they did have three funds. Not that long ago, the, the Martin Curry Asia Unconstrained Fund effectively uh, became an open-ended fund last year. Uh, and so apart from Securities Trust, they're left with Martin Curry Global Portfolio. So uh, again, we'll see how this one plays out. Finally, we've got a couple more things I wanted to run past you, Simon, if I might. The first is a, a trust that I always look at with some interest because it invests uh, only in other investment trusts. In other words, it's a specialist uh, investment trust that invests in other investment trusts. Uh, and in particular, the kind of out-of-the-way ones that you wouldn't normally look at. Uh, and this is a fund called uh, Mitem Global Opportunities Trust, managed by a gentleman called Nick Greenwood, who, uh, who's who been around in the city almost as long as I have. And uh, it's always interesting to see what he's up to and how he's been, how his trust is performing. It's quite small, but it's always interesting if you're interested in the byways of the investment trust world, which, of course, you and I both are. Tell me about them and what they've been saying and how they've been trading. Yeah, so uh, Nick Greenwood, and to be fair, Charlotte Cuthbertson as well has worked uh, alongside him for a number of years. I mean, uh, it's fair to say that it was a tough first three months of the year. Their NAV was down 27%, but you'd kind of expect that given the way the portfolio is set up. And clearly, as already discussed, we've, we've seen a lot of uh, discount volatility. But in theory, at least, this should be Nick Greenwood's type of marketplace. Um, we have, uh, as discussed, seen a lot of discount volatility. Discounts have widened out. There are some that are on discount levels that frankly don't make a lot of sense and it's in those kind of areas that nick can add value can identify the bargains uh, it's not just the buys value for value's sake but where he thinks there's a particular uh, story so for instance a portfolio consists of 56 56 stocks at the moment of which the average discount on the top 12 is something like 28 percent now going back to our earlier conversation that's clearly a lot wider than the sector average discount overall and, you know, he's been buying names recently, such as Tufton Oceanic Assets and River and Mercantile UK Microcap that I think we've discussed in, in, in previous weeks. So that's where, where Nick and Charlotte can really add value. They know, you know, what are the interesting names in the, in, in the sector and they're prepared to go down the, the size scale to find them. It's always an interesting one to watch. And I, I can recommend reading his uh, annual report. It's always interesting. There's a lot of comments on the sector, which if you're relatively new to the investment trust sector, are always very interesting. So that was uh, MIGO, M-I-G-O. And finally, Simon, I want to come on to another trust, which in the interest of disclosure, I'd say you're also a corporate broker too, which is J.P. Morgan European. Uh, and what's interesting about this trust is it has 
I think it, I've had to say it has two share classes. I'm sure you're right on this. Can you explain how that works? What, what does that mean and how does that work? And what's been going on in their neck of the woods, given that Europe has been particularly out of favour for a while as an investment destination? So there are two share classes with this investment trust companies, the growth share class and an income share class. And they have uh, completely separate portfolios um, and therefore different performance record and they, and they trade on different levels. Shareholders can switch between the two uh, share classes on an annual basis, uh, and that's done on a tax efficient way. But uh, effectively, the premise is that if you want growth, then you buy Jet G, the, the growth leg. And then if you want, if you're more likely to have income, then JetEye is the one for you. And that's yielding on a historical basis about 5.7% at the moment. So that's all well and good. It's a slightly unusual structure, even in the investment trust world. The issue that, you, that they've had, uh, and you're right, Europe has clearly been a difficult place for investors, is that they were hit quite hard um, in the first four or five months of the year. JetG, it's fair to say, probably a little bit less than JetEye. So JetG can use a bit of gearing, but really it's JetEye. And the, the way that that particular portfolio works is that they have a, um, a more kind of quantitative screening. So they're looking for the higher yielding names within the European marketplace. Um, and they, they kind of screen that out on a quants basis. Um, so the portfolio consists of over 220 names. It's a highly diversified portfolio. But unsurprisingly, the investment approach leads them into a kind of more value style. And we've, again, we talked previously about how growth versus value and how growth has really performed outperformed significantly uh, value so far this year. And that's certainly been a factor in JP Morgan European incomes underperformance. And that's reflected in its discount. I mean, uh, JetG is trading on about a 17% discount at the moment, whereas JetEye is on about a 19% discount. So these are quite wide discounts for relatively mainstream or very mainstream, really, portfolios of, of blue chip uh, European equities. So we can understand the reason for it. So for people who are looking to maybe for value names or believe that you might see a rotation from, from growth into value, and obviously there are some people in the marketplace who do think that that is a possibility, um, then it, it starts to become an interesting option. I mean, this week we have seen uh, the announcement by the European Central Bank that they are going to put uh, even more money than there was originally thought into trying to stimulate the European economy. And that, I think, is an interesting development for both for the uh, the currency and for the market as a whole. And some of the European investment trusts have been on the move a little bit, I think it's fair to say. But what's, what's the general picture in the sector there? How out of line is JP Morgan European, for example, in terms of discount? So the weighted average discount in the European subsector is about 9%. Um, so probably the top rated fund at the moment is the Bailey Gifford European Growth Fund that used to be European Investment Trust. Bailey Gifford took over that mandate towards the end of last year and actually performed incredibly strongly growth style obviously helping. Uh, BlackRock Greater Europe, which has got a, a very good, strong, long-term track record on a 6% discount, and it kind of goes out from there, really. So uh, the JP Morgan European income leg is, is uh, the widest at 19, followed by the JP Morgan European growth uh, leg at uh, 17. And it's fair to say that the board have previously talked about uh, trying to maintain the discount at a kind of sub-10 basis. Now, clearly, they haven't achieved that uh, for the time being, and certainly the buyback program has been paused, which they're not alone in doing that, given the, the way that we've seen markets shape up this year. But uh, it certainly does look a little bit um, out on its own, or the two of them look out on their own compared with their peers. So would it be fair to say that if, if that situation persists, then they might begin to face some pressure to, to do a bit more on the discount front? I mean, you mentioned share bear bikes and, and what's been happening. That's a very interesting subject. 
we might come back to another time. But essentially, buying back your shares is one of the methods by which boards of investment trusts try to minimize or control the discount, at least within a certain range. And you say that boards have been pausing in their buyback program. Uh, I suppose that's not a total surprise, but uh, presumably they will be expected to get back onto that bandwagon, if you like, as and when the markets continue to improve. I mean, I think what it's what you can absolutely say is that you look over the history of investment trust companies, particularly in the last 20, 25 years, not many mainstream investment trusts trade out on kind of 20 plus or around 20% discounts when they're invested in, you know, relatively blue chip type portfolios for very long, because invariably, you're right, shareholders kind of put them under pressure to do something about it, or the board take the initiative to instigate a buyback program or a tender offer. So I think it's fair to say it would be an unusual occurrence to see that persist for a long period of time. And I guess the point I was trying to drive at was what's been the general experience with trusts that have announced or have discount control mechanisms. It's always during market crises that these uh, fine promises tend to get tested. Uh, in other words, it's much easier to announce that you're going to buy back shares uh, when the discount widens. Quite often when the discount widens is for some reason and it becomes rather harder to keep that promise. But I think it's fair to say that boards that don't keep their promise do tend to get uh, punished over time. If they say they're going to buy back shares when, when it goes to a discount of, say, 10% or more, and then they fail to do so, that's not generally well received. Is that a fair summary? I think that's absolutely fair. And, and to be fair, again, um, there is a difference uh, of approaches here. So some investment trusts have made promises and have absolutely stuck to those promises, despite the difficulty in, in market conditions. But then equally, there are those that for one reason or another just found it too difficult uh, to maintain those discount targets. So it is, it is a mixed picture. Uh, I, I think most investors will give boards uh, a bit of leeway during very difficult market conditions. I mean, most uh, discount control targets or mechanisms have a subject to normal market conditions uh, little subclause in there. And I think most people could agree that the experience, particularly back in March, that was a, a very different from what you would normally expect. But I think now we find ourselves back in more normal times in, in, in terms of markets, at least. You know, I think investors would be right to turn around to boards and say, what are you going to do about this? Very good. Well, we will see. As always, we will see. and We will continue to discuss what we see as time goes by. Simon, thank you again for your time this week and look forward to speaking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.